Thanks for listening to our podcast. The following is a ministry of Orchard Bible Church in Centennial, Colorado. Please join us on Sunday mornings. For more details, visit us online at orchardbible.org. Today's scripture reading is from Ephesians chapter 2, verses 17 through 22. This is the word of God. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have access in the one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being taught together, I'm sorry, built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. We thank you, Lord, that we are able to be in a place, in a time where we can worship you and love you and be with one another. So, Lord, we pray that as we commit our time together this morning, it will be done to glorify you. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> the passage we have today includes a few verses beginning in verse 17, which lead us to, to this conclusion we have, and three things I want to talk about. First of all, the gospel in three words, alienation, reconciliation, and integration. And I want to simply just begin by laying out the dark side of life. What is the dark side of human existence? Because this reflects where we came from, who you were before you were a believer. And it reflects who your neighbors may be if they're not believers, how they think and why they think the way they do. But if you think of the idea of alienation, we see Paul talks about it in our passage. We see it mentioned in many other places. And it's a sense that people have that something is desperately wrong with the human condition and with our own life. And so if you'll just follow me for just a few moments, I'm going to give you just a brief overview of how modern man came to think the way they think and struggle with this sense of alienation. And if you go back in time, you go back before the 1700s, before the Enlightenment, you have a world in which much of the world in some sense or another had a religion. You were a pagan, perhaps, and you had many gods, or perhaps you became a Christian and had one god. But in some sense, everybody lived in conformity with the world around them, with the requirements of their own family, and they followed those rules. They knew who they were based on where they were born and when they were born and how they were born. And so they had a sense of identity because of that. When the Enlightenment comes around, modern science begins to develop and modern thinking begins to develop, and thinkers like Francis Bacon and many others begin to say that what we can really know is only that which is scientifically testable and discoverable. And from that follows many other thinkers that says, yes, yes, yes. What we don't need is a bunch of religion telling us how the world works, or philosophies that tell us how the world works, or family that tells us how we should think and behave and who we are. But instead, we can individually start from scratch and begin with who we are and, and build our own lives in accordance to our own desires. And so that became a problem in modern man's thinking because they began to see that without a God, without a world around them where there's some supreme purpose and meaning in life, 
the life itself becomes meaningless and pointless and has no real sense about it. And so in the 1800s, there's a number of thinkers that began to write about that time. One was a man named Nietzsche, Friedrich Nietzsche, and when he talked about this sense of there not being a God, he wrote that God is dead. Not that we have killed God, but that he never really existed. But in some sense, he acknowledged and realized that once we throw off our understanding that there is a God, that there is some meaning in life, we really are set adrift in a world where there is nothing that really matters. And then modern man began thinking and talking about this and, and wondering what are the consequences of that. And there became a sense in which people began to realize without a God, life really is absurd. There is no meaning to our life. And so there began this thinking, this atheistic existentialism, which said that your existence precedes your essence. In other words, you exist first, and who you are in your essence is determined by you and not by someone else. So your essence, whether you're a man or a woman, your essence, whether you're a believer or not, whoever you really, really are, is not determined before your birth by some categories that church or philosophy may give you, but it's determined individually by you after your birth. You get to choose who you want to be on your own without any religion, without Christianity, without any philosophy, without science or anybody else telling you who you have to be. Life becomes absurd then when there's no God. And they begin to sense this. And then they begin to think about the meaning of life itself in terms of our own death. Because when we face death, we realize that is the final absurdity that proves that life is meaningless because we now die and go into ultimate nothingness. And nothing really survives of, of consequence in your life. And then they begin to realize that if life is absurd and death is the end of it all, that really we are, in some sense, Heidegger said, thrown into the world in a time. You didn't choose when you were born, how you were born, where you were born. You were just thrown into this world. Your existence has no purpose, and that shows the absurdity of it. And that leads to the sense of anxiety, because you can't give yourself a real reason for getting up in the morning, a real reason for living. And all of that leads to this realization, this understanding that you are alienated from anything meaningful. So now modern man has to devise a way of solving this alienation problem. And so many writers of the past hundred years talk about our alienation. We're separated from something meaningful. So you now have to find meaning, give purpose to your life. Now you may be thinking, well, I never thought about all that. My neighbor never thinks like that. And there's an answer for that, too. It's because they don't think at all. Right? And so the answer, Neil Postman wrote a book, Amusing Ourselves to Death. And that becomes something of, let me take a word from Marx, the opium by which the atheist lives. By amusing themselves to death, they need not think about the meaning of life in any consequential way. Now, we think that modern man took some hundreds of years and only recently has discovered this idea of alienation. But when you read what Paul writes here, he talks about this 2,000 years ago. And the solution offered there goes back even before Paul into the ancient history of Israel. The understanding that we are alienated for sure, but we're alienated from a God who has given us life because of the fall. And so in Ephesians chapter 2, in two different places, two different ways, Paul addresses this issue of alienation first and then reconciliation 
And then finally, in the passage we see today, it is integration. How we as humans can find our place in this world in a place where we can now find a sense of joy and happiness and meaningfulness in our life. So real quickly, because I want to just kind of take a picture of the forest. As we go through Ephesians, you go through it quickly, and, and it becomes very uh, looking at trees, 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 and you lose sense of the forest. So for just a moment, if you'll uh, indulge me, go to Ephesians chapter 2, our passage, but beginning in verse 1. And see here how Paul sort of lays this out. In verse 1 of Ephesians 2, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. That's alienation. So Paul lays it out there. You were children of wrath, separated from God. Beginning in verse 4, he turns to the idea of reconciliation. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. And he goes on there to describe through verse 10 that it's not of our doing. They were created for God for good works. That's the reconciliation. When you come to verse 11, as we saw last week with Paul Scrabeck, therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles of the flesh, and now he turns back to alienation again. Now, if I were editing Paul, I would have seen this and said, you know, Paul, you've got alienation verses 1 to 3, and you pick it up and verse 11. Why don't we just combine those two thoughts, and we can even reduce a few words here and kind of boil it down to something more tight and concise. And Paul would have said, no, I've got a strategy here. I need to hit it once and then hit it twice because you have to get this right before you can go on. You have to understand the alienation and separation from God first, and then we can understand what reconciliation really is all about. So again in verse 11, Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the circumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made by flesh of hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Alienation again. He gets you hit, hits it twice. And then verse 13. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility, by abolishing the law of the commandments expressed in the ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of two, and so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. So now he goes to great lengths to show this church in Ephesus, a church made up of many Gentiles. He writes this letter so that Gentiles understand the blessings of God, and Praise God he did, because I think most of you are Gentiles, if you didn't know. But he writes this letter to show that in Christ, the dividing wall that separated the Jews from the Gentiles is now broken down. And so in the uh, Jewish mind, let's begin there, they had the promises of the covenants. The Abrahamic covenant in Genesis 12, Genesis 15, Genesis 18, it's reaffirmed there repeatedly 
that God made a promise through Abraham to bless the world. The Gentiles being excluded from that could receive the benefits of it by trust in God. But it was made to Israel who was to be a witness to the world. And as time passes, the Jews are distinguished by the ceremonial laws, uh, the, uh, the way they ate, the way they dressed, the, the times of the seasons that they followed. They were separated from others. So you could tell a Jew based on uh, what he did on Saturday or what he didn't do, I guess, uh, based on how they dressed and these sort of things. There was a separation. And the Gentiles knew that and they were fine with that. We're separate from the Jews. Let's keep it that way. But then Christ comes along and with his death provides reconciliation to all. And then people are thinking, okay, now how do we accomplish this? How do we bring these two groups together? And I don't know that any of us have ever experienced a situation where you're being reconciled with someone that you had so much uh, uncommon with them before, where there was such a hostility and enmity, like that's not my people, those are someone else, they're not me. And now Paul comes along and says, no, we're all together one in Christ. And so I don't know if any of us have ever experienced that sort of reconciliation with somebody we really have nothing in common with. But that's what Paul was doing here for the Gentile believers in Ephesus. Now the Jews, many of these people thought, well, all right, if, the, if Gentiles can become part of this covenant, they should go through the covenant requirements of circumcision and of all these other requirements. And Paul said no. There is a conflict in uh, uh, we see in the book of Acts, chapter 15, resolved, Galatians talks about it, where you don't have to become a Jew first in order to enter into this family of God. And so this enmity is broken down. And again in verse 17, And he came and preached peace to you who were far off, and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. And so with those verses, quite clearly we see the sense that we are one. In the body of Christ, we are one together in Christ's church. And while this seems rather common to our thinking today, we have to remember how revolutionary this idea was in the first century and how much of a conflict it brought. And so while Paul spent a lot of his time building churches, he spent a lot of his time also repairing the ones behind him that were corrupted with bad doctrine, still trying to keep this dividing wall there. Now, we have alienation. And reconciliation. And so twice in Ephesians 2, Paul gets at both of them. You're alienated but reconciled in Christ. And in verse 11, you're alienated but reconciled in Christ. But that's not enough. And now that he's laid this groundwork, he now begins to teach on something that was equally revolutionary. And that is that we now have to become integrated. And I use the word integrated. I tried out some other words, but integrated seemed to fit better for what I want to say integrated first as a human in who you really are. Secondly, integrated one with each other. And again, Paul gets at this. So what is the church? He's going to tell us now how these Ephesian believers had to think about what the church was. Now, if we were to ask ourselves about the issues of the church and how we think about the church, we might each come to different sort of ideas on, on these sort of questions. Um, there has been in recent decades, this uh, church growth movement that has done good in helping churches and believers to reach out into our neighborhoods. But sometimes the strategies used in these movements have now brought into our way of thinking, and all of us, 
uh, some errors that we sometimes think we need to go back and kind of correct. So, for example, if I were to ask how many of you attended church last week, you'd raise your hand. How many of you attended church last week? And how many attended church this week? You attended today. And so we often think in terms of attending church and less in terms of actually being the church. And so Paul's saying, don't think in terms simply of attending a place, because when you attend a place, and that's how the church growth movement kind of approaches this, we want to provide a place where people are welcome. We want to provide a place where people are duly entertained and challenged. And so we think about devising programs and, and ways of bringing people in so that when they attend, or attenders, that they can be a part of us. And so people think about going to church kind of like going to a theater or going to a play. You know, I get dressed up and I go. I meet some other attenders. I say, oh, good program today. And then I go home quickly to get on with my life. And when unbelievers attend church and we act like that's all we ever asked of them, they're missing something fundamental what Paul is getting at here. And so we have to move away from simply thinking about attending church and instead more about being the church. But there's also other issues of uh, consumerism. Uh, we want to entertain people, and so we uh, invite them, and we try and look for ways of making them feel comfortable. But uh, beyond that, there's this individualism. By living in a world in which people are told to be your own individual, choose your own way, people kind of approach church like they're dating. Uh, you know, you, you date, and if you've had a relationship break down, maybe in a marriage, divorce, you say, I'm never going to marry again. So we approach church like we're dating it, not like we're married to a local church, a local assembly. And when you do that, when you treat it like you're dating it, you can always just keep an arm's distance away, and it allows you to be a little bit more critical. Now, if I were to open this up and say, how many of you have something critical set to say about some church you've had in the past, or even, oh, no, about this church itself, you know, you, you would, okay, it would be a, a, a horrible moment to have all of us stand up and to issue all of our gripes to one another in this local assembly. That's true of every church. I mean, that's true everywhere. But by dating a church, it allows you to stand off and go home and say, oh, that church is not as good as this one over here. And so we can kind of treat things that way. And so we have to pick and choose, like we're looking for a grocery store. You know, I like King Supers. I like Safeway. And then you, you, you have a battle with one another over whether it's King Supers or Safeway. And then your kid comes along and says, what about Trader Joe's? You've got to go to Trader Joe's and see what they have. And you think, oh, there's something newer and better than what I even knew. So we have to get away from treating church like this. And so Paul uses these metaphors for the church. Now, how is our thinking in the church sort of regulated by these metaphors? We can think of these metaphors that, that Paul gives us here. Uh, if I were to ask you, what metaphors do you know of that Paul gives of a church? You might think of a couple. One would be a body. In Ephesians chapter uh, 4, that there's pastors and, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. So a body is used as a metaphor, as a picture of what we are. We each have a place. We each are a member. And Paul will use this metaphor in Ephesians chapter 4. In chapter 5, Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. And then Ephesians 5 verse 30, we are members of Christ's body. And so, get in your head already, you're going to see it later, but we are members of a body. The body of Christ, we often refer to it. Another metaphor that's used, as we see in Ephesians as well, is that of a bride. In Ephesians chapter 5, verse 31, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, 
And I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. And so here, again, Paul says that uh, the church is like Christ's bride. You think of what it means to be in love, a husband and a wife, the commitment that's required. When you get married, uh, the uh, issues that you have with each other are overcome. Uh, when you're dating somebody, if you don't like the way they eat, if you, as a woman, go out with a barbarian who takes his napkin and stiffs it down his shirt rather than lays it on his lap, you can walk away from that person. But when you marry somebody, you live with the differences and the conflicts, and that's what keeps the church together. And that's why Paul is describing us as a body, this integrated sort of sense, as a family, as a marriage. You deal with it that way. And marriage is so important. You know, we got Valentine's Day coming up here and uh, tomorrow. Tomorrow? No, I, I'm serious. I've got, I lost track. We had National Pizza Day on Thursday. We've got the Super Bowl today. And then we've got Valentine's Day tomorrow. So we're just overwhelmed with, with all this. But, uh, but in a marriage, you know, we, we, we love one another. We support one another. I know in times past, you know, my wife and I, like you have, have had ups and downs and difficulties. And, and my wife and I spent our 35th anniversary uh, last year huddled up because of COVID because you couldn't go anywhere. And she was discouraged about that and sat and about many other things. And, and uh, I told her, look, Deanne, you have to just embrace your disappointments. You have to embrace your mistakes. And then she gave me a hug like I'd never had before. <laughs> and that's what a marriage is. Oh, I don't... They say a marriage is what a lifetime commitment to the person most likely to kill you. <laughs> it shouldn't be that way, though. Paul uses this idea, and we're going to see this in chapter 5 again. But then he comes to three other metaphors we want to look at today closely. First of all, we are united as fellow citizens in God's kingdom. Now, this is a profound, profound sort of an idea here. We are united as fellow citizens in God's kingdom. So we have first this political metaphor. Verse 19, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Now the word kingdom is not used here in this passage. It talks about uh, fellow citizens with the saints. But what he's doing is describing what is this trans-ethnic, transnational sort of a movement where God's kingdom is no longer limited to those who are born Israelites, but it's now open to all of those who accept Christ. And all of you can become kingdom saints, fellow citizens, one with one another. Now, in the ancient world, they knew what it meant to be a citizen. If you were a citizen, you had rights. If you were not a citizen, you didn't have rights. And we all know what that means. As Americans, we say we have rights as an American. First Amendment rights, Fourth Amendment rights. Ninth Amendment rights, whatever those might be, we don't know, but other rights that we have. But if you're not a citizen, you wonder. Uh, as many of you know, uh, two years ago, my daughter and I went to Italy, and we left Rome hours before COVID shut everything down. But as my daughter, Chris, and I were leaving, uh, we're going through security at the airport, and there was literally, truly nobody there. I mean, the whole concourse was empty except for her and I, and a couple of We'll call them TSA guys there. And so she goes through one guy, and I go through another. And she goes through, and, and very quickly took about three minutes. And I go through this guy, and he stands there flipping papers, asking me weird questions. I thought, okay, he's got nothing else to do. And then he takes my passport and paperwork and goes back to talk to other guards. 
Uh, and then he comes and says, will you come with me, sir? All right. So I follow him and we go and he puts me in this little sitting area. And uh, Kristen, my daughter, she comes and sits near me so we can talk to each other over this dividing wall. I could see her over there and we're kind of like semi-joking about this. But as time passes, 20 minutes, it seems like it's getting rather serious. And so he's back there, and I can see in the glass partition the wall where he's talking with others. And three or four other guys come around, and they're all looking at this computer. And they're kind of flailing around, and they're looking at this. And I'm looking at this, thinking, this is absurd. This is bizarre. What is going on here? Now, my daughter and I had an idea that maybe my son had something to do with it because he's got my same name. But that's not an issue for today. <laughs> but after 20 minutes, he finally came and said, okay, we're going to let you go. And I said, what was the problem? He says, well, your passport number was the same as a Saudi national who's uh, prohibited from flying. So how was that possible? So they thought I was, they looked at my face, this, you know. <laughs> I'm not that guy. And so they let me go. But for a time there, I was concerned about what it meant to be imprisoned in Italy. What rights do I have? What health insurance, would my health insurance work over here? When you're not a citizen, when you're an alien, you don't know what really works. And in this world as believers, as citizens of God's kingdom, we do know what really works and how God works in us and the rights that we have as believers. And so we need not concern ourselves with all of the temporal issues that so often distract our way of thinking today, but to realize and acknowledge that in Christ we have something greater. In the same way, my son-in-law, Canadian, came down like some of you, Alan, and uh, came down Canadian. You go through a certain series of of tests and requirements to become a citizen. When you do, you become an American citizen, and you now have certain rights that you may not have enjoyed before that. All of us as believers, Paul is saying, is recognize you are part of a kingdom. You're citizens of a kingdom with rights and responsibilities. It doesn't come like you're responsibility-free. We have obligations as believers, and Paul talks about that at great length, and will do so as Ephesians unfolds. But we will see that as a believer... We have rights and responsibilities that we share with one another. And so again, in this passage, he says that we are fellow citizens with the saints. And what Paul is doing here is what Jesus did, and that's unfolding this new idea of a, that we're in a kingdom. Now, what are our responsibilities? Uh, some years ago, I lived in uh, California, Los Angeles, and in the late 90s, in, in 98, 99, I had a friend who invited me to go to a Colorado Avalanche game in Los Angeles against the Kings. Now, he knew I was an Avalanche fan, and so we go to the game, but he says, these aren't my tickets. They're four tickets from a very wealthy man, because these were just three rows back behind the Kings, right on the glass. And I was told, you can be, come to the game with me, but you can't wear an Avalanche shirt, and you can't cheer for the Avs. Now, this was hard. This is our first year. Our first year as an avalanche, and I'd never seen a game before because I didn't live in Colorado. I couldn't go to a game, so they come out. And I'm invited to go to this Kings game. They said I knew it was an avalanche game. And so uh, I don't wear a, an avalanche shirt. I don't wear a Kings shirt. I just wear something generic. And as play unfolds, cheering, you know, you can kind of under the breath cheer, whatever. But, you know, <laughs> but you think about it. I was an alien in the Kings kingdom, and I couldn't behave out of order with that. If I wore an avalanche shirt, they'd be looking at me like, who are you here wearing that shirt? I couldn't cheer for the abs because I was in a different kingdom. In the same way, we often, as believers, walk around and say, oh, you know, I'm baptized and I've got church membership and I've got all these 
accoutrements of my Christian life, but you go into the world out there and you take all of that off to kind of hide whose kingdom you're a part of. Oh, you know, don't associate me with that. And so what Paul is saying is, show your colors, who you are. Wear your Christian shirt so people know it. Now, it doesn't mean you become confrontational and ugly with people. But what you do is you make people know there's something different about this person in the way they think and the way they behave. The, the most uh, problematic way we have in being a witness for Christ in the world in which we're a part of is that we look so much like them. Now, unlike the Jews and Gentiles of 2,000 years ago, we don't wear different clothes substantially. We don't eat different foods. I've got pork uh, ribs going right now that I started this morning. Uh, so we eat a lot. So how do we distinguish ourselves? And it's basically the way we think, our worldview. We view the issues of life differently, different priorities, different problems. So we think about the problems of life. It's not the mundane issues that so distract so many people, but we think about the real things that really matter. And so our worldview becomes substantially that which distinguishes us. And that's why we as believers have to think about what it means to think like a Christian and teach that to our kids. What does it mean to think about being a believer? And so Paul gets into that in great length as Ephesians unfolds later as well. Do this and don't do that. Think about who you are and behave accordingly. And so being part of this kingdom is uh, so critical. And it shows you who your allegiance is to. Is your allegiance, in the metaphor again, to the avalanche or to the kings? Is your allegiance to God himself or to the gods of this world? Make your allegiance known by the way you behave and the way you think. So that's the first metaphor that Paul lays out in terms of integrating us. He's talked about alienation. He's talked about reconciliation. And now integrating first in terms of you being a citizen of God's kingdom. That's the first metaphor. The second one we see continuing on in verse 19. Uh, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. So we have this social metaphor. We're members of the household of God. And a metaphor's purpose is to sort of describe and explain something that you may not naturally understand. But if I use a metaphor in such a way, it might be more insightful, might allow you to think. The metaphor is not literal in that sense, but it's figurative in a sense, and it gives you a sense of, of identifying with it. But you think about now being part of God's family. Well, what does that mean? Well, it means in the past you were not, and now you are. And that's why Paul in Romans talks about adoption. You were not born into God's kingdom. You were not born into God's family. You were adopted into it when you became a believer. Now, is an adopted child any less a child than natural-born children? No. They're, they enjoy all the same rights, all the same privileges, all the same love, all the same comfort, and all that goes with it. And so being adopted into God's family carries all of that with it. But he talks about this adoption. You're members of God's household. We come into God's kingdom in different ways. Um, let me just get to this illustration here. You think about if you've traveled on missions trips, you've gone to different places, and you've met believers in other places. When you, when you meet a believer in a different country, and I know many of you have been to many places. Uh, my, my daughter, Kristen, again, has been to Mexico, spent a summer in Mexico. She has friends, fellow believers from Mexico. She's been to India and Myanmar and now Italy. So she's got, in Hawaii, she's got friends all over the world, fellow believers all over the world, and they, they enjoy each other, they write to each other, they love one another. Well, then, you know, the, the thing is you never have any 
cross words with those people because you don't know them. But in a family where brothers and sisters are, are next rooms next door to each other, where you're bumping into each other, conflicts arise. And so don't be surprised at that. We often think that it's always better to be a believer somewhere else or some other place because I don't have conflicts with them. You'll have conflicts wherever you are. But what Paul is saying is members of family acknowledge and realize you will have those conflicts, but that doesn't mean you're still not brothers and sisters one with each other and have an obligation to show that love through that, through the conflicts, through those difficulties. And so Paul is picturing this family whose problems can be solved. We can think through these different ways and we can, as believers, learn to love one another. The third metaphor that he picks up here is again uh, equally profound. In verse 20 to 22, he uses this architectural metaphor. We are united as living stones in God's growing temple. He says that we are built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. This picture of of the church being a temple, as we think about it, becomes even more profound. Now, if you think about being a citizen, you can become a citizen by kind of bringing your individuality within the kingdom and showing allegiance to the king. And now you're a citizen. Being part of a family says, okay, we're a little bit closer. We're brothers and sisters, but we're within a a much more narrow household. But we're members of God's family in that sense. But being part of a a building. Now, Paul uses metaphor of a building that grows. So Paul's not against really mixing metaphors. But uh, we have this building that seems to grow. And maybe he's talking about that we can lay stones on top of stones. And each of us are our own stone joined together. Now, in the ancient world, they quickly figured out it's a lot easier to build a building if the stones are all the same shape in some sense. And so you have to take a stone, they call them ashlar stones. Vitruvius was a Roman architect of the ancient world that did so much writing that explains how to build things that the Romans built. But you carve it in certain ways, you cut it clean, and the Romans were brilliant at this, and you you have ways of joining stones on top of stones uh, even without mortar. And so these things can be built. Uh, and, and as they are, they grow together. Now we might think, oh, the difficulty of that is, I want to be who I am. Now you can lay flagstone in your backyard and you can lay it down in different segments, different broken stones and different shapes and fit it together and have a walkway. But you can't build a building with a bunch of stones in different shapes like that. It just doesn't work quite the same way. In some sense, God is calling all of us to be shaped into how we're supposed to be shaped so that we can become part of God's building, part of God's temple, this structure here. Now, how we get to be thinking of ourselves as a temple from where the Old Testament was is an interesting theological trail. Let's just take a walk through that for a moment. On the one hand, we begin with the ancient world in which God, in Exodus 25, said, to the Israelites as they've gone through the Exodus, they're now in Sinai, build a tabernacle, and in this tabernacle there, in a unique way, I will dwell with you. And so in chapter Exodus 25 to 40, and you might remember Lars preached on those 16 chapters in one sermon, basically skimming over it, because such detail, 
so difficult. But if you read that detail, you see how profound it really is. But build a tabernacle, and that's where God, in a unique sense, dwells with the Israelites. As time passed, they established themselves in the land, and they built a temple. And the first temple built by Solomon, a beautiful structure. But this was where God would dwell. Well, we know the Babylonians destroyed that. The Persians took over the Babylonians and allowed the Jews to come back. So they built the second temple. And it was built, and it grew for a time. And under Herod, it grew enormously. Herod the Great was not great because of his moral character, but because of his building ability. Herod the Great built many magnificent structures in the ancient world. And as he did, he built the temple. Not because he was a real Jew or believed in God, you know, he was a bad man. But he built it so he could buy their love. And so this temple is built up. And by the time Jesus comes along, it took 46 years for the temple to be built up. And now Jesus looks at this temple. And you remember in John chapter 2, when uh, Jesus now, after the wedding at Cana, goes to Jerusalem and he has this conflict. And Jesus, which your Bibles might say in its headline, says he cleanses the temple. What Jesus is really doing there is not cleansing the temple. You remember he goes in, he overturns the money changers' uh, tables. He's got his whip and he's cracking it and he's moving them out and he's... He's, uh, uh, you know, making a scene. Always cleansing the temple. What would happen, what, what the men of changes were doing real quickly. Uh, Jews were coming to Jerusalem to offer their sacrifice. And you had to have a, a clean animal, a pure animal. You couldn't have one. So if you brought one from Galilee, let's say a lamb, and a wolf bit its ear off on the way down the road, you couldn't use that lamb. And so what you did is you came to Jerusalem, and there they had the animals for you. So all you had to do was to buy them. And so you first change out any foreign money you had with uh, uh, money that's uh, appropriate and buy your lamb and make your sacrifice. And so these people were there as a service. Now, the temple is very small, but the temple complex was many football fields large. And this is where this would have happened. And so Jesus comes in and makes this scene condemning what's going on. And we often think that his condemnation is against those who are selling sheep for the sacrifice. And that's not his point at all. What he was doing was condemning not that, but condemning the fact that the temple had become corrupted. Corrupted by those who, uh, uh, the, the Sadducees that ran it, the temple priests that ran it. It became essentially a bank. It became, and that's why when Josephus talks about it in the year 66, when the uh, temple was uh, destroyed, uh, they uh, got rid of all the debts that they owed. Imagine if somebody went to your bank and destroyed all of your uh, visa debt or your mortgage debt. Oh, you're debt-free. How wonderful that was. What Jesus is doing is condemning what's going on in the temple, and he's saying something more, that the temple is not the end. The tabernacle was not the end. It was a pointer. The temple's not the end. It's a pointer. A pointer to what? Jesus says it's a pointer to me himself. It's a pointer to me. Now, if you've got a dog, I've got some dogs in the house. Um, if I, I said to the dog, there's your toy, and I point at the toy, point at the toy. You know what the dog does? He looks at my finger, and I say, no, 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 it's over there, go over there. And the more vigorously I point, the more fixated the dog becomes on my finger itself. And he just looks at the finger, looks at the finger, and says, no, look over there. And the Jews became so fixated on the temple, even through its corruption... And some left it like the Essenes who went to the Dead Sea. But, uh, but they can be fixated on that. And Jesus says, no, the temple is a pointer to Jesus himself. That's what it's about. And so he could say to them, this temple will be destroyed in three days, raised up again. 
And the Pharisees who has this conversation, this conflict, says, how can you raise this temple in three days? It took 46 years for this magnificent structure to be built. But the believers now, his disciples knew that he was talking about himself. And so when Jesus is resurrected, he's already identified himself as the new temple. And now he's inviting us to be a part of that. We are stones in that temple. There's uh, other verses as well. Let me just read a few of them to you. Uh, in 1 Corinthians 3, For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. And then Peter talks about this in chapter 2, 1 Peter 2, 6. Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Jesus then becomes that cornerstone for us. And so in the world in which people struggle with alienation, with the absurdity of life, with the meaninglessness of life as it faces death itself, Jesus and his disciples offer us a new way of being integrated, not only within ourselves so that our life has meaning, but within his kingdom so that it has an eternal significance. Now some might think, again, in terms of an individual, if I have to become chiseled into a stone that looks so uniform like everybody else, I lose my individuality. And that's what being an American is all about. It's about being an individual, they may say. Even as believers, we think that way. But what you lose is not your individuality, but what you gain is a meaning for your life because you're now part of something much bigger, much more important, much more significant, and much more profound in terms of your own life. Being part of a church, a local assembly, not simply something on the periphery, but something here meaningfully, that's what makes a difference. And that's what Paul's calling us to, to think in terms of these metaphors that says, I want to be part of this structure, part of this kingdom, part of this family. And if you think along those terms, you will find you have a place, not only here, but a place in God's kingdom. And that's a promise that Paul makes to us through Christ. Let's stand if we can. We'll dismiss in prayer. Our Father, as we think today about what it means to be a believer, we know that we're not believers on the outside looking in. We're not simply observing what goes on in a church service, but we ourselves are members of the family, living stones within a structure that you're building, that we're citizens of a kingdom that you're building. And so, Lord, we ask that each of us might be inspired again to think in greater terms about our own participation with the rights and obligations we have as a member of your kingdom, as an adopted child of your family. Lord, each of us looks to you today for meaning in life, for hope in the future, for salvation that comes only in Christ, and we thank you for that. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.